Good morning. It's good to see everybody today. Uh, I guess it's been five weeks since I preached, which is pretty rare for me. Uh, I don't know how it's going to go. I'm still a little bit short of breath, so if you see me pausing and trying to catch my breath, uh, please bear with me. Hopefully it won't make the lesson any longer. Um, as Brother John prayed in his prayer today, he asked that everything that I said would be true. That's my desire. Um, I don't have a desire to trick you. I don't have a desire to indoctrinate you. We're not interested in trying to uphold some traditional teaching that we have at this congregation or some official doctrine of the churches of Christ. What we are interested in today is what does the Bible teach. That's it. And as we look at the subject of truth this morning, uh, I want you to keep that in mind. That as we look at the scriptures this morning, please look at them and examine them and reason along with me this morning as we study God's word and decide for yourself if the things that we study this morning are indeed the truth. In John chapter 8 and verse 31, the Bible says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed on him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, there's truth in and of itself, okay? I could say this morning that uh, these chairs are gray. Someone might say, well, actually the frame is brown. Okay, the frame is brown. Well, maybe they're bronze. Or, or we could have a discussion about color, and some of those things are subjective. But if I was to tell you that this is a Bible, that's true. Someone says, well, it's really not true. It's only true because we all mutually agree that this is a Bible. And I want you to know something. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And that's what the world wants to do. It wants to spin the truth on its head. It wants to stand it upside down and make everything relative. But there's certain things that are true. And when Jesus talked about truth in John chapter 8 and 31, he wasn't just talking about truth in general. He was talking about the truth that is a truth that would make us free. Free from what? Well, go read the chapter sometime. Read the discussion that they had. And as Jesus told them that they would be made free by this truth, they said, we're not slaves, we don't need to be free. And Jesus said, whoever commits sin, whoever practices sin, is a slave of sin. In other words, you are slaves of sin and you need the freedom that I offer. That's the freedom we all want. But I'm going to tell you something. If you want to be free from sin, then you need the truth that Jesus has. The truth. Today, we see a lot of different ideas about truth. And this is a very popular saying. Your truth and my truth may not be the same. Now listen, I understand what people mean by that. What they're really trying to say is your perspective and my perspective and the conclusions that we draw based on our experiences may not be the, tr may not be the same. But that word truth is a very loosely used term. And we have to be very careful when we decide to use the word truth when we're really talking about perspective. A uh, very famous Indian author, Amos Tripathi, said, There is your truth and there's my truth. As for the universal truth, it doesn't exist. I want to ask you a question. Is that true? 
Well, it can't be true because universal truth doesn't exist. Nothing can be true. The very statement, truth, there is no absolute truth, must demand that that statement is either true or false. So absolute truth must exist for it to be true. Do you see the problem with saying things like that? There is no absolute truth. That means nothing's true. The founder of the Church of Scientology, uh, Elroy Hubbard, I guess it's Ron Hubbard, I can't see the screen back there, said, truth is what is true for you. Now, that sounds good, doesn't it? It's very non-controversial, I'll say that. Why would something be true for one person and not true for another person? I'll tell you, there is... Uh, a little bit of what he says here that I want us to consider for a moment. As we grow up, we grow up in homes where we are guided by a set of parents, grandparents, mentors, uh, teachers. We are guided by pastors, by preachers. We learn things as we grow up, and they are true to us, are they not? Are there things that you've always believed? Yeah, me too. Now, as I've gotten older, as I begin to study the Scriptures, as I live my life, if I, as I had my own experiences, some of those ideas change. But there are things that are true to us, whether or not they're really the truth, they're true to us. And so as we think about that this morning, I want you to take something and set it aside. Set aside what is true for you, what is true to you, and let's look at the words of Jesus And let's ask ourselves, is what I believe the truth? Because Jesus is the truth. And he is incapable of telling a lie. He's incapable of being wrong. Because Jesus is deity. Jesus is the divine son of God. Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Timothy had a very important job. And Paul tells him, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead, that means the living and the dead, at his appearing and his kingdom. And here's what he told Timothy, preach the word. We've lost that. Men want to preach wisdom that they've come up with. Men want to preach ideas that they have uh, come up with through philosophy and other means or some book that they read. But see, Paul said preach the word. Why? Because the word is true. And he said, I want you to be instant in season, out of season. I want you to use that word to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort, and do that with patience. Do it with all long-suffering. And he said, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And what he is saying is, they're not going to tolerate good, true teaching. Are we not living in that time today? Why are there so many churches that teach so many different things? Because men have changed what they believe to be true. And Paul warned him. He said, you preach the word. He didn't say, go preach life application. He didn't say, go preach some other doctrine. He said, you preach the word. Because there's going to come a time when people don't want to hear the word. In fact, he goes on to say this, But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth. That's a huge statement. Turn your ears away from the truth. You know what that means? It means when I hear the truth, I say, I don't have to listen to this. 
I don't have to receive this. I don't have to hear this. I don't have to like this. And you go, well, why would people do that? Why would people not want the truth? Well, he tells us, after their own lusts, their desires. You know why there's times we don't desire truth? Because as the old saying goes, and bears true, truth hurts. Truth hurts. Sometimes truth is just hard to hear. But we have to be careful because it's the truth that is going to make us free. And whether or not the truth hurts or it makes my life more difficult, we should desire truth because that's what will bless us. That's what will help us. That's what will make us grow. That's what will change us. It's the truth that we need. Not to have our ears tickled. Now, he said the time will come. Unless we think that's today. It happened very quickly, actually. Uh, this is just about 30 years after Jesus was resurrected. Paul writes this letter uh, to the church at Galatia, and he tells them this. He says, I marvel. In other words, I'm so surprised. I'm shocked. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him, that's God and Christ, that called you into the grace of Christ, unto another gospel. They had already changed the truth. They'd already distorted the truth. And he says, which is not another. So it wasn't like they started preaching Buddha. They didn't start preaching Hinduism or idolatry or something like that. But he said, they've changed, they have perverted the gospel of Christ. They perverted it. And here's what he says. But though we, that's the apostles, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, he says, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. That word, the idea of let him be accursed means reject him. That's what it means, reject him. Now I want you to think about this. This is a very strong statement. Paul says, even if an apostle, even if an apostle comes to you and teaches something different than what we've already taught you, you reject them. Suppose that right now an angel came through this ceiling and had this bright glowing glory and stood over us and gave us a message. Would you listen? I would. I'm just being honest. I mean, my ears would be open more than any other time in my life. That'd be magnificent to see such a sight, wouldn't it? But he says, if it's different from what we've already delivered... Reject that angel. He says, in fact, if any man preach any other gospel than what we have given you, you need to reject that man. It doesn't matter whether someone's been to college, they've been to seminary, doesn't matter if they've got a PhD, doesn't matter who they are or what they are, if they preach something different from the word, he says, reject it. Why? Listen to what Paul says. He says, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Paul said, look, I am not here to tickle your ears. I'm not here to tell you what you want to hear. It's not my desire to please you. He said, in fact, it's not my idea to be persuaded by you. He says, I certify you, brethren. What that means is I make known unto you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me or of me, as this translation says, is not after men. 
For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says, listen, here's why you need to reject anything else. Because the gospel I'm preaching is true. And here's how you know it's true. Nobody taught it to me. I didn't sit at someone's feet and learn this gospel. I didn't receive it from some man. God sent the Holy Spirit to Paul and guided him through miraculous inspiration and revealed to him the truth. And he said, I know it's true. And if anything else comes, he said, you need to reject it. Some of you have seen me use this example, and I hate to use repetitive examples, but it's effective and so, sorry, it's the best I've got. Any of you ever use rat poison, mice poison? You ever looked at the ingredients on mouse poison? I'll tell you, it's quite shocking. Because if you look at the ingredients, 99.995% of rat poison is mouse food. It's mouse food. 0.005% is poison. I'll tell you what it is. It's undetectable. You, they don't taste it. They don't even know it's there. That's why they eat it. They just think it's food. And I'll tell you, that's the problem with what was happening at Galatian. It's the problem that's happening today. Is if you take just a little bit, just a little bit of deceit, and put it in a very large amount of truth, sometimes it goes undetected. You don't even notice it. And that's what Paul was warning them about. He said, it's not like they're preaching a completely different gospel. What they did was they distorted, they twisted, they perverted the gospel they already knew. And I want to talk for a little bit this morning about how men have done that. You know, one of the things that's, that we have to watch out for is philosophy. And Paul warned the church at Colossae about how philosophy and empty deceit can cheat us. It can rob us of the freedom that Jesus wants to give us. It can rob us of our eternal life if we're not careful because it can lead us in the wrong direction. You know, one of the things that's become very popular is that all roads lead to heaven. And maybe you haven't heard that. Maybe you've heard, well, it's okay. It doesn't matter what you believe and I believe. We're all, we all believe in the same Jesus and we're all going to the same place. But I want you to notice what Jesus himself said. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus didn't talk about a bunch of different ways. You say, well, that's right. We're all following the same Jesus. But I want you to also notice that Jesus said, I'm not only the way, I'm the truth. So I want to ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the truth? You say, of course I do. <laughs> of course I believe Jesus is the truth. You know, to believe that Jesus is the truth means we have to believe every single thing he said. So what about this one? I'll tell you, this is a very controversial subject. And I'm not disregarding that. I'm very conscientious of the fact this is a very controversial subject. But here's what I want you to understand. It really shouldn't be if we just listen to Jesus. Because Jesus was very plain about this subject. And I want to listen to the words of Jesus for a moment as he talked about water baptism. 
As Jesus was giving his apostles what we call the Great Commission, he gave this uh, some 40 days after he was resurrected. And he said unto them, Go into all the world, now listen, and preach the gospel to every creature. Why did Jesus want them to go preach the gospel to every creature? Because he knew that it was that truth that would free men from the slavery of sin. And he said, go preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Now, what did Jesus say about the necessity of baptism? He said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Who said that? Jesus did. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the truth. Now, if I asked you if you believe that everything that Jesus said was true, we would all without hesitation, say, absolutely. But you know, some people believe this is not true. This statement that Jesus made is not true. And I want to show you how people have expressed that disbelief. Some say he that believes and is baptized will not be saved. You say, well, who in the world says that? Well, the atheist does. Because they don't believe in salvation. They don't believe in heaven or hell. They don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in anything leading to salvation. So they would say, well... What Jesus said is not true. And we would expect that from someone who doesn't believe there's a God, wouldn't we? But you know, there's other people who would say, He that does not believe and is not baptized will be saved. You say, do people really think that? Yes, some people do. A universalist believes that. He believes that everybody is going to heaven. And it doesn't matter whether you believe or you're baptized. God's mercy overwhelms His justice and He loves everybody and so... Don't worry and don't be concerned about what you do because God's going to save us all. But Jesus said in Matthew 7 and 13, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. What did Jesus say? What did the truth say? Not everybody will be saved. In fact, he says most people will be lost. Most will. That's hard to hear, isn't it? The universalist is wrong, but they disagree with what Jesus said here in Mark 16, 16. You know, some would also say, he that does not believe and is baptized will be saved. You say, well, who believes that? Who teaches that? Well, someone who practices infant baptism would teach that. Because as smart as our kids are when they're born and as prodigious as your children might have been, because all mine were, <laughs> they're all geniuses, Right? I'll tell you what they were not capable of. They were not capable of hearing God's word, reasoning with God's word, receiving that word, and then making a comprehensive decision to be baptized. They were not capable of that. They were not capable in looking at the evidence concerning Jesus Christ and telling whether or not he was the Son of God. Why? Because they were infants. They were children. You know, when the eunuch was baptized, he talked to Philip in Acts 8 and 36, and as he was going on their way, it says they came into a certain water. And he said, see here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? In other words, is there anything keeping me from being baptized? And Philip answered him, and here's what he said. If you believe with all your heart, you may. So this man wanted to know, is there anything keeping me from being baptized? Well, Philip said, yeah, there is something that would keep you from being baptized. If you didn't believe, that would hinder you. What's that tell us? That just as Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. 
It's both. It's not one or the other. It's not neither. It's both of those things must occur for someone to be saved. There are also people who teach, he that believes and is not baptized will be saved. And that is the doctrine that we might identify and call faith only, faith alone. And I want to just pause for a moment, and I want us to focus our attention on this one for a few minutes. Uh, Because I will tell you that this doctrine, uh, it's not in line with the Scriptures. And I'm not going to assert that, okay? I want to look at the Bible. Let's see what the Bible has to say. You decide for yourself what you believe the Scriptures teach about this doctrine, and we'll go through a study on that at this time. In James chapter 2 and verse 20, James said, But wilt thou, O vain man, uh, wilt thou know, rather, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Now I want you to stop and think about this statement that he makes here. That faith without action is what? It's dead. What does something that's dead do? Nothing. It does nothing. It has no energy. It has no life. It has no ability. It's just dead. It's useless. That's his point. Faith without works is dead, being alone. Okay? Now, was not Abraham, he says, our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? Now, does he say that works saves us? No, that's not what he says. What does he say? He's making a connection between faith and works and that action must occur based on the belief. Okay, let's illustrate it this way. When we talk about faith, what do we think about? Something that happens in the mind. That is a mental recognition, a mental processing of something and then a belief in accordance to it. Okay? We see the evidence about Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, therefore we have faith, right? James is making a point about this. Even if you believe that something's true, if that belief doesn't cause you to act, what good is your faith? It's not good at all. Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Well, why was it accounted to him for righteousness? Because he not only believed God, he took his son Isaac and he went up on the hill and he made Isaac carry the wood for the offering and he put him on the altar and was about to kill him. And then God said, now I know. Now I know what? Now I know you believe. Why? Because you acted on your belief. So he said Abraham was justified in that way. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith God, uh, Abraham rather believed God, it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Now listen, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Now here's the interesting thing. The two words faith and only are only in the Bible one time. And it's in this passage that says we're not justified by faith only. Now, I'll tell you, the book of James has become a great center of controversy because of that. Some have just said, well, James wasn't inspired. (laughs) Because obviously he disagrees with Paul. Because Paul taught over and over, we're not saved by works. And we're going to get there in a moment, okay? And we're going to look at these and see, do these men teach different things? Were they teaching the opposite? And I'll tell you right up front, they weren't. 
And this is why some of the study we've been doing over the last few months is so important to ask certain questions about context. Who is talking and who's being spoken to and what was the situation they were addressing. And I'll tell you, James was addressing a very different situation than Paul was addressing. James had nothing to say here about the law, but Paul did. And Paul taught a lot about works and how works could not justify a person. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul said, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is where men have gotten the idea that we're saved by faith alone. Why? Because Paul said we're saved by faith, not works. But the question is, what works was Paul talking about? Was Paul saying, listen, if you believe in Jesus Christ and then you do anything, you've nullified God's grace? Is that what he was saying? No. In fact, in the next verse in this chapter, he said, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. What was his point? Well, every single book that Paul wrote to, uh, to Gentile churches addressed this issue. And because of that, we can look at these letters and we can understand what Paul meant when he said these words. In Romans chapter 10, Paul said this, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Why? Because they weren't. They weren't saved. It was his desire that they would be saved. And he said, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. There was no questioning that they loved God. There was no questioning that they were willing to do what God said. But he said this, they have a zeal of God, but it's not according to knowledge. There was something they didn't know. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness. And when he says God's righteousness, what he's talking about is what he has been talking about for nine chapters leading up to this point, And that is God's way of making man right. They're ignorant of God's way of making man right. And instead, he said they were going about, listen, to establish their own righteousness and he said they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth here's the problem that they had that Paul had to write about and it happened in nearly every church you had Jews and you had Gentiles coming together in one body and the Jews were not wanting to let the old law go and they were telling these Gentiles look you've got to keep the law of Moses and you've got to be circumcised or you can't be saved and so Paul wrote these letters and he told them, look, those things are irrelevant. Those are, those are irrelevant. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the law of Moses because that's not how righteousness works. That's not how salvation works. God is not going to judge you that way. First of all, the old law has been done away with. But there's something else they needed to recognize. And it's not the question of whether or not we do something in accordance to our faith. It's where does righteousness come from? Maybe you've heard somebody say that being right is not the result of man's goodness toward God, but God's goodness toward man. That's what Paul's addressing. What these men thought they could do was do enough, do enough good works that God would look at them and go, oh, well, you're righteous. That's not the way it works. You can't put your good works on one side of the scale your bad works on the other side of the scale and hope the good outweigh the bad. And God look at you and go, oh, well, you're righteous. I'll tell you why. Because none of us are righteous in that way. None of us. Because we don't need that. We don't need to do more good works 
to outweigh the bad. What we need is pardon. We need forgiveness. We need to be cleansed. We need not for God to look at us and go, well, you're a lot better than you used to be. What we need God to look at us and say is, you're innocent. You're forgiven. They didn't get that. That's why they rejected Christ. They didn't know they needed a Savior. They wanted to find righteousness through themselves. And Paul points this out in other passages. In Philippians 3 and 9, he says, And be found in him, that's Jesus, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, listen, which is from God. Do you see what he's pointing out? That if you're trying to seek righteousness through doing works of the law, you're trying to seek righteousness from within yourself. But he said, that's not where you want to be found. Where you want to be found is in Jesus Christ. And having your righteousness come from God. It's about understanding. One comes from within, one comes from self, one comes from God. That's the problem that they had. What they thought was we can merit salvation. We can merit righteousness. We can work our way there. It wasn't about obedience. It wasn't about doing something. It was about a fundamental, foundational misunderstanding of how salvation comes to mankind. Titus chapter 3 verse 4. Paul writing to the evangelist Titus talks to Titus about the same thing. But I chose this passage because I want you to see something because... We've done this looking at this study because of this. What people have connected is they said, well, if we're saved by faith and not works, well, baptism is obviously a work, so therefore it can't have anything to do with salvation because we're not saved by works, okay? That's the logic, okay? Sounds good, right? There's a problem with that, though. Okay, look at Titus chapter 3. He says, but after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared... Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Just what we looked at in Romans 10, in Philippians 3, and also in Ephesians 2. We already know that doesn't save us, right? Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Okay? But now look at the next half of the verse. But according to His mercy, He saved us. Amen? How do you do it? By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The words washing of regeneration are literally rendered the bathing of rebirth. What's he talking about? I'm just going to go ahead and tell you he's talking about baptism. And we're going to prove that in just a moment from Jesus' own words. But I want you to see a connection here. The same passage that he says works of righteousness don't save us, he says baptism does. So what's that tell us? Baptism is not one of these works of righteousness which we have done. It's not the same thing. Baptism's not a work of righteousness that comes from within. Baptism is a part of God's plan. It's part of his gospel. It's what Jesus told the apostles to go out and do and preach. Why? Because it's God's way of making man right. 
John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, talking to Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What's born again? Rebirth. New birth. Now this was very confusing for Nicodemus, and we see that in his words. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Well, that's a good question, Right? I mean, it sounded crazy to him that Jesus said, look, if you want to see the kingdom, you've got to be born again. And he's going, um, I'm an old man. <laughs> Am I going to go into my mother's womb a second time and be born? Why does he ask such a crazy question? Because he is thinking about a physical birth. What did Jesus say, though? Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What's Jesus tell Nicodemus? I'm not talking about a physical birth. I'm talking about a spiritual birth, a birth of water and of the Spirit. What did Titus say just a moment ago? The washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. What did Jesus, what was he talking about? A birth of water, a birth of Spirit. Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul taught the same. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ. How do we get into Jesus Christ? Paul said it's through baptism. Can you be saved and not be in Jesus Christ? This is how we get into Jesus Christ. Why? Because when we're baptized, he says we're baptized into what? Into his death. Therefore, we're buried with him by baptism into death. It's a uniting with Jesus' death, it's a uniting with Jesus' burial, and it's also uniting with Jesus' resurrection. Notice verse 4, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in what? Newness of life. What do we celebrate when we have new life? What are we celebrating? A birth? That's what Paul's telling us here. The old man dies, he's planted in a very figurative and a very spiritual way in the waters of baptism, and then he's resurrected a new creature. That's when that occurs. It's the new birth. So what about the thief on the cross? I'll tell you, this is kind of like what we were talking about, that trump card that gets thrown out during spades that everybody loves to get. You know what I'm talking about, the ace of spades? Doesn't matter how bad a card player you are, if you get that one, you're going to win one hand. Because nothing beats that card. Well, that's how this is for a lot of people. They'll say, everything else we talked about is irrelevant because you can't explain away the thief on the cross. And if the thief on the cross can be saved without being baptized, I can be saved without being baptized. I want to think about the thief on the cross for a few minutes as we close. And I, I want to tell you just right up front, we make a lot of assumptions about this man. You know what the assumption is? This is a lifelong criminal who didn't know Jesus until he was nailed next to him on the cross. And on his deathbed, this lifelong criminal had all of his past wiped away just because he asked. And he wasn't baptized. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever read in scriptures where the thief wasn't baptized? I'll give you one billion dollars. That was billion with a B. One billion dollars if you can show me in scripture where the thief wasn't baptized. How do we know? Well, it doesn't say he was baptized. So obviously he wasn't. Really? 
Let me ask you a question. Was Barnabas, Paul's companion, baptized? Doesn't say he was baptized, so I guess he wasn't. You see how that logic works? But I want to show you what, the, what it does say about the thief. Luke chapter 23, verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? That's the thief that we're talking about. Secondly, he said to him, But we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know what we just learned about the thief? You say, well, not much. A whole lot. A whole lot. Let's look at it. You know what the first thing that this man said to the other thief? Do you not fear God? Why would someone be surprised that someone else doesn't fear God? Because they fear God. You think that the thief on the cross feared God? Yeah, or he wouldn't have been surprised that the other man didn't. But I'll tell you, there's something more interesting than that to me about what the thief said, and that's this. He says, we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. How did he know that? How did he know Jesus had done nothing wrong? I mean, the entire crowd that was watching Jesus be crucified thought that he was a liar. Everybody thought Jesus had done something wrong except for this thief on the cross who said, this man's innocent. He's done nothing to deserve this. You know the other thing that's interesting to me? He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord. Who did he recognize Jesus as? His Lord. But I'll tell you the most intriguing thing that this man said when he was hanging next to Jesus on the cross was this. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I want to think about this for just a minute. Jesus is hanging on the cross near death. And it's obvious he is not going to fight. He's about to die. And this man hanging next to him is about to die with him. And he says, hey, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Really? Did dead men have kingdoms? What did this man think about the kingdom? That it transcended death. And he asked Jesus to remember him. You know why? Because he believed that Jesus was the king and was going to set up his kingdom. So you really think this is a man who never heard anything about Jesus? I'm going to tell you, the disciples didn't even understand this concept. They thought physical kingdom. They thought it was going to be in Israel. This man knows he's about to die. I'll tell you what, it benefits a man nothing if he dies and someone remembers him. That's not what he was wondering. That's not what he was asking for. But Jesus told him, today you shall be with me in paradise. Where do you suppose this man would have learned about the kingdom? Who was teaching about the kingdom? Well, the first person that came teaching the kingdom was John the Baptist. And what was he doing? Baptizing people. And telling them, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When John died, after he was murdered, 
You know what Jesus and his apostles did? They went around baptizing people saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a lot of evidence to actually suggest this man might have been baptized. But you know what? We don't know. <laughs> but I'll tell you, there's a lot more to suggest he was than he wasn't. But you know what? It doesn't matter. You say, well, why take us through this exercise? Just to show you that just because we make assumptions about certain situations, we might be wrong about those assumptions. And if we're going to base our salvation on assumptions, we're in big trouble. But I'll tell you some things we can know about the thief. We can know about him. And one of those is he lived before Jesus died. He was saved before Jesus died. You say, well, why does that matter? Luke chapter 5, 23, whether it's easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, rise up and walk. Jesus is about to heal a man, and there's people watching, and they're waiting for him to heal him so they can accuse him of healing this man. You know why? Because Jesus just told him, your sins are forgiven. And he said, that's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God? They were right about that. Who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus said, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? What would be easier for me to say this morning? If a crippled man came in here and was crippled all of his life, and I said to him, rise up and walk, we'd all watch, wouldn't we? And then you'd go, well, you're a fraud. <laughs> you know why? Because there's real visible evidence to that statement, rise up and walk. But you know what there's not visible evidence of? Your sins are forgiven you. That's a hard thing to say. Why? Because you can't really know whether or not they are or aren't. But Jesus said this. Look at the middle. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sin, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, rise, take up thy couch, and go to thine house. You know what the man did? He rose, took up his couch, and went to his house. And Jesus, by saying that, was saying, listen, I'm going to prove to you that I can forgive sins by saying these words. Get up and walk. Jesus could forgive anybody he wanted to. When the Son of Man was on earth, which he's not today, he's no longer in that form, he's no longer the Son of Man. He is the glorified Son of God. He is Lord in Christ, and he's sitting on the right hand of God exalted. But when the Son of Man was on the earth, he could forgive whoever he wanted to. You know, he did that all the time. He forgave Zacchaeus, the little short man that was up in the tree. Remember Zacchaeus? You know how he forgave him? He went to his house and ate dinner with him, and Zacchaeus said, Listen, everything bad I've ever done, I'm going to undo it. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to your house. Why don't we hear people, instead of saying, I want to be saved like the thief on the cross, well, I want to be saved like Zacchaeus. Because it's not deathbed confession. It's very different. Did the thief have to be baptized to be saved? Absolutely not. You know why? Because Jesus could forgive whoever he wanted to. He could forgive whoever he wanted to. But there's another reason why the thief didn't have to be baptized into Christ. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Now here's the concept, okay? We live under what we call the New Testament, don't we? When did the New Testament begin? After the testator of the will died. When Jesus died, the New Testament became a force. Everything leading up from Sinai up to the death of Jesus was under the law of Moses. Now, when was the thief saved? 
When was he saved? Because over here, baptism into Christ was not required. I heard a, a guy, uh, his name is Robert Murray one time. He said, well, here's the real kicker to this whole thief on the cross thing. He said, who died first? I'll tell you who died first. Jesus did. You say, oh, well, that changes everything if Jesus died first. No, it doesn't because we're not asking when the thief died. We're asking when was he saved? He was saved before Jesus died. But here's the thing. The reason baptism into Christ was not required is not only because the New Testament hadn't become a force, but here's the other thing. What do we look at in Romans 6? When someone's baptized, they are buried with Jesus and they're resurrected with Jesus. Jesus was neither. He hadn't been buried. He hadn't been resurrected. That teaching didn't even exist until Jesus gave it to his apostles in the Great Commission that we looked at at the very beginning. There was no such thing as being baptized into Christ until Jesus gave the Great Commission. Why would this man be required to do that? But see, we don't live on this side of the cross. We don't live on this side of the resurrection. We live over here on this side. And you can't be saved like the thief on the cross because I'll tell you why. Jesus is not here in the flesh as the Son of Man. And secondly, you live under the New Testament on the other side of Jesus' resurrection. What was required of him is not required of you. Jesus told us what was required of us because he is the truth. And I'll tell you, that one little word changes everything. You don't believe that? One little word changes everything. And I'll tell you, we wouldn't dare do with Jesus' words what the atheists would do. But we, in, a sen in, in essence, do that anyway when we change what he said at all. Because what Jesus taught is the truth, because he is the truth. I want to leave you with one last passage today. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. I want you to really think about this. Because there may be somebody here who's, this has been hard to hear. You say, listen, my, my parents don't believe what we looked at today. But I'm going to tell you something. It will not be their words you'll be judged by on the last day. It won't be their words. It won't be any preacher's words. It won't be my words. It'll be the words of Jesus Christ. We can receive him or we can reject him. But I'll tell you, that's a big deal. Because the irony is, the words we reject will be the words that condemn us. Friends, don't trust in your truth. Trust in the truth. And if you have not been united with Jesus Christ in baptism, I'll tell you, you haven't been reborn. And if you haven't been reborn, you don't have new life. And if you don't have new life, It doesn't matter what you believe. Your belief will not make you free. If you need to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning and be freed from your sin, we want to offer the invitation at this time. If there's any other reason why you need the Savior, we ask that you would come as well as we stand and we sing the song that has been selected.